have endeavored, in this ghostly little book, to raise the ghosts of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. I had haunted their houses pleasantly, and no one wished to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, C.D. Stave 1. Marley's Ghost. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country is done for. You will, therefore, permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead. Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point that I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am about to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hammett's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say, St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterward, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The farm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, 
no pilting rein less open to entreaty. Foulweather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say, with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what o'clock it was. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming on, they would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and they would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, Dark Master. But what does Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only gone just three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day and candles were flaring in the windows of neighbouring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and it was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by, and it was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. There is no phrase one can utter that draws a more visceral Christmas response than bah, humbug. And so it is with great joy and depth of feeling that this holiday season we bring you an exploration into this the most famous and meaningful of ghost stories. It may be decked with boughs of holly and frosted with snow, but at its heart a Christmas carol is a most glorious ghost story. And we hope all the things you learn today will haunt your house pleasantly forevermore. So let us get down to business then. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would be dead.
Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Oh, I love reading Christmas Carol. Bah humbug. Bah humbug. <laughs> One of my favorite things to read. Yeah. I would read it out loud all the time <laughs> to anyone who wants to listen. Right. And I would always listen. <laughs> Which is like you and two other people and then nobody else. Yeah. Holly, stop reading Christmas Carol. We've had enough. Oh, not my me. God. Well, thank you. And I have to say, there is also nothing that I love to write more than Dickensian-style prose. I think I was supposed to be a penny-a-word writer, but somehow, probably. yeah, probably. Somehow I ended up in the era of limited character tweets and three-minute TikToks. Yeah. It's all too much. I don't know. Just bring it back, man. Maybe I will. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing it back. I'm going to be super verbose. Yeah. Well, all right. So a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah to you all. By now, we're in both holidays. Okay. Which is really nice, in my opinion. I like when they overlap. Me too. Because it feels like we're all doing the thing together, mm -hmm. you know, which I love. Like, we're all doing it. Let's talk about our weird families and stress headaches together. Yeah. 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 But on to this week's episode, I have, I have a great and abiding love and respect for A Christmas Carol and for Mr. Dickens himself. Uh, this story has been an enormous part of my life, so be gentle with me if I, like, cry at the end of this one because oh, I boy. love Scrooge. <laughs> Today is a gift for the season to you guys from us, and also it's, like, kind of my birthday present to myself because I loved doing this. So thank you guys for letting me do it. You're welcome. You're thank, welcome, thank you for agreeing to do it. Everyone else just, it's going to happen to them. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> they had no say in the matter. Oh, that's right. I'm turning um, older than I want to talk about very soon. And Leslie and I host Christmas Eve together. So we'd really like to be looking our best. For sure. You know, as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So if you guys would like to get us a gift this holiday season... <gasps> I mean, we, we're giving them a gift. Maybe they want to give us one. What an idea. Right? I think it's smart. And we really only have one thing on our list. Yeah. We don't ask for much. Hmm. You guessed it. A great steaming mug of hopefully boozy. Well, now I'm just thinking of poop. Steaming? Mu <laughs> yeah, like caught chocolate. I know. I, I went in a weird place. You went. Okay. <laughs> Went to a weird, weird Why place. is that the only thing that steams in your life? I don't know. <laughs> Are you pooping outside? Maybe. It's a tough <laughs> time right now, Holly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do you Just want kidding. me to say a different adjective for that? No. We all know what it is. <laughs> it's not poop. What is it? Validation. A hill worth dying on. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, fiends? You can get us some. And unlike anything on Amazon at this point, it will arrive by Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So no, good to go. No, things will still arrive by Christmas from Amazon. Not when this is released. Oh. <laughs> Today, yes. Oh, boy. In a few days. No. So sorry, I know. Guys. Yeah. So sad. Too bad. Ooh. But how, you must be asking yourself. Yeah. You're still thinking of steaming things, so it's fine. I get that sorry. you're distracted. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. Yay. I know. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in your life, well, then lucky for you, you don't have to. You can simply support us over on Patreon. Woo. You went soulful. Yeah. I like it. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, 
special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show host, Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. Yeah, that's the best option. Leave a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the Scrooge in your life. What's their name? Who's shitty about Christmas? Who is shitty about Christmas? They could be like a postal worker that has to deal with a lot of shit. Or maybe like a retail worker. I imagine it's very frustrating to be them too. I know. Karen. Karen. Oh, no. That is a Scrooge. only, yeah. So then tell your friend. Karen and Kevin. Oh, man. They both. Yeah. Man. So tell them both. And then your friends and Karen and Kevin can become fiends. And we can all hang out together. I know. And maybe they'll feel less shitty about things. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to seclude the Karens forever. No, we want to, much like Scrooge, we want to teach them the error of their ways and allow them to be reborn. That's right. Yeah, so tall order, but we can do it. We're going to do it all together, guys. Yeah, everybody as a team. (laughs) Save the Karens. Save them. (laughs) We're the only ones saying that. Lastly, we will, as always, have our scary ghost stories for you on Christmas Eve. But after that, we will be taking two weeks off this year. Ooh. I know. We're going to take a little time to plan and prepare for the new year and everything we have ahead. And a lot of podcasts do that, but we have chosen, or I have chosen mostly just to, like, kill myself instead. So So I let Leslie... This way, we can be a little bit more planned about the days we take off. Yeah, I let Leslie um, convince me that my sanity should come first. <laughs> Your sanity is my sanity mm. is their sanity. It in tr- that's very true. But we will be back on January 12th better than ever. And Watch it'll out. be a new year. And this is going to be a good one. Yeah. Or fucking else. And I am ready to bring you um, what I'm confident is going to be the best ever. So we're good. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Manifest that. Manifest it. That was a really confident way to say that. Never mind. Try again. Best year ever. Yes. I'm going to bring it. You're going to bring it. We're all going to bring We're it. We're going to bring it. Yes. We would be dead is going to bring it. We're, gonna, We're coming in hot. going to bust through the barriers. Yeah. Get ready. Pull up those straps, people. <laughs> Settle in. Let's go. Grab the popcorn. We're doing it. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was a better manifestation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Leslie, do you have anything to add this week before we begin? Well, Holly. The other day, okay, I was walking around town and I stopped by this cute little store. It was called Shore Soaps. You stopped by it? I just stopped by. You weren't already in there? They had some great smells coming out of there. And as I was getting closer, I just felt like my skin was just like moisturizing and I was getting this youthful glow. No, no, no. We have to tell people they give that to us through validation. Yeah, but I also heard... That the better this business does, the better we do. Okay. So if you guys have time and you're in Cape May or you're online, just stop by Shore Soaps and see what they got. Because 
it's pretty great. And every product is made with uh, validation as well. There you go. Yeah. All right, then. That was it. Good one. Thanks. On with the show. In the spring of 1843, 31-year-old Charles John Huffman Dickens, which is more of a name than we all thought he had, read something that forever changed Christmas. And no, it wasn't the details of an old miser who sat working in his counting house each Christmas, eagerly collecting mortgage money, or the obituary of a smaller-than-average child with a single crutch. It was an article by a journalist friend of his. Hmm. Yeah. The article detailed a government report on child labor in England at the time and included many interviews with the children who were forced by their family's poverty into a life that many of us could barely imagine. According to the December 13, 2016 issue of Time magazine in an article called The Real Reason Charles Dickens Wrote a Christmas Carol by John Broish, I believe is how we would pronounce it, quote, Dickens read the testimony of girls who sewed dresses for the expanding market of middle-class consumers. They regularly worked 16 hours a day. That is too long. Much too long. Six days a week, rooming like Martha Cratchit above the factory floor. So if you guys remember the story, Martha comes home for Christmas and they're all excited, that's because she had to be sent out to work. Mm -hmm. He read of an eight-year-old ch- of eight-year-old children who dragged coal carts through tiny subterranean passages over a standard 11-hour workday. And these were not exceptional stories, but ordinary. Dickens wrote to one of the government investigators that the descriptions left him, quote, stricken. This new, brutal reality of child labor was the result of revolutionary changes in British society. The population of England had grown 64% between Dickens' birth in 1812 and the year of the child labor report. That is a lot. Yeah. Holy moly. So we're in, you know, 1843 when he writes Christmas Carol. So this might have been 1842. And he was born in 1812. That is is a lot of growth Mm -hmm. in like 30 years. Right. Workers were leaving the countryside to crowd into new manufacturing centers and cities. Meanwhile, there was a revolution in the way goods were manufactured. Cottage industry was upended by a trend towards workers serving as unskilled cogs, laboring in the precursor of the assembly line, hammering the same nail or gluing the same piece as an 11-year-old Dickens had to do, hour after hour, day after day. More and more employers thought of their workers as tools as interchangeable as any nail or glue pot. Workers were becoming like commodities, not individual humans, but mere resources. Their value measured to the haypenny by how many nails they could hammer in an hour. But in a time of dearth, the 1840s earned the nickname the Hungry Forties. The poor took what they could arrange. And who worked for the lowest wages? Children. The compassionate Mr. Dickens, upon reading this, was beside himself. In the face of such horrifying confessions, one would think that almost everybody was, right? Like, you read that, that's horrible. Right. We're talking about little kids working like 16, 11, uh, like if they're they're teenagers, 16-hour days. Mm -hmm. If they're, you know, like sixth grade, 11-hour days in coal mines, just dragging carts along. That's, That's awful. Really awful. Yeah, so everybody was probably upset, right? Yeah. Wrong. You see, most people of means, be they modest or grand at that time, had a less an empathetic view of the poor. It was thought that the poor were poor because they were lazy and immoral. 
giving into their base desires and suffering the consequences. I read one article that, that said the only luxury the poor had at the time was having sex. Mm. So they had lots of babies. Furthermore, it was thought that to help the poor would only encourage their bad behavior. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So if you help them out financially and get them out of the gutter, you're only encouraging them to, like, drink and have babies. Right, right. Cool. Now, this attitude was spurred along by an Anglican cleric by the name of Thomas Malthus, who argued that in terms of population, we should be prioritizing quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, gross. And what this meant was that if the poor were starving, then we ought to let them die so as not to crowd the planet for the people of means and, in his opinion, worth. Mm. So make way for people who have money because you poor people are useless and should just starve to death and that's fine. Malthus wrote that the increase of population is necessarily limited by substance. Quote, population does invariably increase when the means of substance increase and the superior power of population repressed by moral restraint, vice, and misery, end quote. So in other words, if they're going to die, they better do it and decrease the surplus population. Yeah, I mean, just get it over with, you know? <laughs> and this was a popular opinion, and, and one, you know, that last line is a direct quotation from Christmas Carol. Scrooge says that to the people that come to his house asking for charitable donations. I think the poor, if they're going to die, they should do it. And when we read it, we think, wow, what a weird, horrible thing to say. But at the time, everybody of his, like, social class would have thought the exact same way. It yeah, was not uncommon. I mean, it's not uncommon now. No, it isn't. You're right, which is awful. Mm -hmm. I think that it's easy to feel that way when you're separated from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what's so weird about that is that I don't know how much they were. Like, the poor they, were in the street, and Scrooge yeah. was directly denying them things. They were, but a lot of, and some of, some of the wealthier people, people obviously lived in the cities, mm -hmm. but it's almost like New York where you have like the areas where, you know, like their, their own towns almost, yeah. and maybe they came in to work. Maybe. So maybe some people lived above their office and like, yeah. the, and like Scrooge kind of did, but I would say that the majority of them only saw these people when they were coming to work. So they just associated them with, with that yeah. more so. And then they could go home to the safety of their own homes. Right. And I guess also, like, if you don't want to see them, you don't have to. It exactly. can be invisible yeah. to you if you elect not to look. Mm -hmm. But that was a lot, like, in this era, yeah. uh, a lot of people really used their homes as a way to, like, isolate themselves from yeah. all of the stuff that was going on. So they would be really stressed on the streets and then enter their home and be like, all right, we're good now. Everything's fine. Oh, nice. I forgot all of the streets. I forgot everything was bad. Which okay. is which is how you kind of want your home to be. Of course. But in this but sense. not at the cost of like the whole population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the time, the poor were um, not to be given charity because they were not seen as fit to receive it, which is so insane to me because who else are you going to give charity to than the people who need it? Right. The only assistance that was seen fit to give the poor at the time was to place them in debtors' prisons or workhouses. In a debtors' prison, one would remain in a cell until their unfortunate family had repaid their debt, often having to undergo enormous tragedy to do so. But workhouses were not much better. Workhouses were cold institutions that were generally organized by age and gender, so families were separated when placed in them. A workhouse would give you basically a place to sleep, like a cot in a giant room, a set of clothes, which would be like utility grade, the bare minimum of clothing, and very minimal food in exchange for committing all of your time to grueling manual labor. 
So it's a fun time. Yeah, it's a really great time. Now, if the residents of these workhouses were paid any wages at all, which sometimes they weren't because they were really just working to keep their space there, mm-hmm. they were so meager that it would never really afford them the opportunity to get out of the workhouse. It was just a never-ending loop of hunger and dangerous work that continued usually until illness or injury claimed your life. So it's pretty awful. Right. It's bleak. But in the words of Scrooge himself, those who are badly off must go there. Hmm. And so it was that bucking popular opinion, Mr. G- Mr. Dickens felt not only compassion, but also a sense of injustice on behalf of the poor, not just because he felt badly for the poor children of the present time, you know, the ones he read the article about, but because at one point in his life, he was one of those children. Mm. Yeah, Charles Dickens did not have a super easy upbringing. So in response to these horrors, Mr. Dickens set out to write and publish a pamphlet called, quote, An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. Okay. So we could have had that instead. <laughs> and as zippy of a title as that is, Charles Dickens quickly realized that the way he would be able to reach the hearts and minds of the public was probably not through a wordy political pamphlet, but rather through a Christmas story. I love it. Yeah. This is not to mention the fact that uh, Mr. Dickens's most recent novel was not doing as well as he planned, and he was in need of money. So he pivoted. And in just six weeks' time, Ebenezer Scrooge was born. Wow, that's so fast. And he wrote it in six weeks. Ugh. Now, at that time in England, Camden Town, to be specific, Christmas was not a time of charitable giving. That was not like a common thing people did at Christmas. Nor was it a time of feasting or revelry. Christmas trees had also just become a tradition in many homes as they were first seen by the people of England by Queen Victoria, who insisted on having them in the palace. Mm -hmm. She had one in her room when she was a child, and she was like, we should have one in the castle, too. I love it. I like it, too. A Christmas Carol was published in December of 1843, and it was immediately embraced by the public. The story and its themes of Christmas familial love and merriment, a large meal, games, gifts, and the spirit of giving struck a chord and caught on like wildfire which helped ease forward a Christmas renaissance that has seemingly not stopped since. So we know that Charles Dickens lifted certain themes for his eponymous tales from real life, but there's so much more than a sense of urgency to help the poor. So let's start with the setting. Leslie, maybe you can help us out with that. We are in 1843 England. What are, what are things like? What, will, what, what would our setting be like? Well, it's kind of shit. Yep, that sounds right. It's mm-hmm. uh... It's not great. Yeah. It's only good for the people that have money who don't have to deal with it. But for everybody right. else, it's kind of shit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, so Dickens talks about this. Like he makes the atmosphere in London just like really dark and gloomy. And generally most of our Victorian era stories are just like in a fog. Basically. All of the time. And he, I said that in the opening when he talks about how it got dark at three o'clock, yeah. but it hadn't really been light all day. Right. So uh, that was called the London Fog. Oh. Yeah, which is a delicious beverage as well. I learned about that from you ages ago. Yes. So uh, London Fogs mostly resulted from the gritty smoke of domestic coal fires and the noxious emissions of factory chimneys, coupled with the right atmospheric wet in stillness. Sulfurous elements gave the resulting miasma a yellowish tinge like that of pea soup. Ew. Mm-hmm. A bad fog was consequently a pea souper, or later, a London particular. 
<laughs> a pea super. It's a pea super out there. <laughs> that sounds like a superhero made of peas. Oh, I'm yeah. pea super. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Mm-hmm. That would be on like... He's like a really... Clues, clues. Really little. <laughs> yeah. Really little. Good. Besides yellow and brown, fogs were described by Victorians as gray-yellow of a deep orange and <gasps> even black. Oh, my God. That is so gross. I don't I know, know that there's a grosser combination than gray-yellow. Yum. <laughs> so during severe and long-lasting fogs, animals found a breathing so difficult that prize bulls at the London animal shows would lie down and die. No! <laughs> Mm-hmm. The livestock just wheezed to a halt and died. Yes. Ew, yeah. I hate it. The atmosphere's filth would enter people's mouth and lungs so that <laughs> cab drivers would spit out gobs of phlegm and drink whiskey to clear their throats. I have never hated anything more. And I know some of this because my birch ancestors were potters mm-hmm. at the time in in. Hanley in England. Okay. And they all died of black lung because all yeah. they did was inhale horrible stuff and cough up black. Right. <laughs> I know. This just reminds me of like just smoking like cigarettes, like terrible cigarettes. <laughs> oh. The soiled air would seep into houses through doors and windows, oh, just like in your yes! just like in, in the story, coating furniture and clothes with an oily, slightly gritty smut. Ew, can you imagine you're like greasy from the air and it just seeps in under your door? <gasps> Plants withered. Oh, God. The plane tree became so popular in London in part because soot on its shiny leaves could easily be washed away. So that's why they were like, we'll have to get that tree. Get you a tree you could wipe down. Yeah. Ew. That's like, I guess that would be equivalent to the trees that I'll see or like the plants I'll see that... I'll be like, is that fake? Oh, no, that's real. Oh, that's easy to clean. You do have to dust them. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a big creeping philodendron in my bathroom upstairs. Mm -hmm. I call her Phyllis. She makes me itch everywhere. I love her anyway. (laughs) But yeah, she gets dusty. All right. So I just wanted to touch on the London fog epidemic that was going on. (laughs) Oh, my God. That is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine how depressed you would always be? Oh, yeah. Like you would never know happiness if your mm-hmm. life was just yellow, gray, phlegm colored, oily mm-hmm. air. Yep. And you they just said, coughed. They said that it would be that foggy about 63 days of the year. That's too many days. Too many days. And also, TB was everywhere. So you're just coughing mm-hmm. for every reason and you don't know why. And it's disgusting. Like, it's just the fog. I don't have TB. <laughs> Either way, I'm coughing up something disgusting. Yeah. Gross. <sighs> So uh, my other information, uh, when we did Jack the Ripper, we also talked a lot about the Victorian yes, area. We did. So you can the area, Victorian I area, don't know that area, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but the era, so you can always go there to learn more about the prostitutes of the time. That but today, like a, wait, that sounds like a euphemism for modesty. Like, please stay away from my Victorian area. Yeah, because like that's just for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not till marriage. <laughs> My goodness, cover your Victorian area. <gasps> and it's like your ankles. Yeah. <laughs> so, as Holly did say, Great Britain in the 19th century saw a huge growth in population. So there's about Ooh. three times the population at this point in our story. The growth was most likely due to large families. Uh, which there is now five to six children on average. Mm. More children were surviving infancy, which was nice. People were starting to live longer. For reference, by 1900, the average life expectancy for men was 45, and for women, it was 50. 
And that was a jump from 1850s, where it was 40 for men and 42 for women. Oh, my God. And immigrants from Ireland were also coming over to flee from the potato famine and the unemployment in their own country. So I talked about that a little bit as well in Jack the Ripper. Sometimes you need a boy. Sometimes you do. In the cities, not only were immigrants arriving, but the British were also looking to move where there was seemingly more opportunity. But with so many people running for opportunity at the same time, a scramble to take any job they could resulted. And wages were low, which was extremely unfair, uh, but easy to do because everybody was just jumping for jobs. Um, And companies were clearly making more money, which was, you know, they were like, well, they're doing really well, so we'll do well. And we want to succeed like them. And they were just kind of like, no, we're going to, we're just going to keep making more money as they do today. That feels very similar. Very relevant right now. (laughs) But as the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. And those in the middle either sank or swam. The Victorian era, as we've talked about before, consisted of three economic classes, the upper class, middle class, and working class. The upper class was seeing the most of the sudden rise of economy. Money was rolling in, which gave them more time to be home with each other and to partake in all the fun activities that were popping up, like playing cricket, the family and friends, and going to all the new shows that were traveling through their city and attending mass sex parties, you know, whatever rich people do. I think that's what they do. Yeah. Right? That's what they do. Yeah, I want to. Just like Vanilla Sky all the time. I was thinking Eyes Wide Shut, but like, Oh, sorry. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I meant. (laughs) One of those movies. (laughs) They both are Tom Cruise, I think. Yeah. So we're fine. (laughs) Definitely was thinking If you guys don't know about the masked sex parties in Vanilla Sky, you didn't watch it carefully enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. It's underneath the surface. Mm Mm-hmm. Though the family spent more time with each other, this wasn't as true for the younger children of the upper class. Basically, until the kids were a bit older than school age, they spent most of their time with their nannies, only seeing their parents, mainly their mother, for a couple hours a day. They had, like, children's time. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Boy. Yeah. But they were, like, useless at that age. So, like, what what are you you going to do do with them? (laughs) You're not making me anything. Yeah. You're not helping with chores. Mm Mm-hmm. What are you, just cute? Yeah. Fine. Look, You're like that's... messy. You always have jam hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, not jam hands. Nobody likes jam hands. That's yeah. why you have small dogs instead. Ugh. Yeah. As the children got older, the boys would attend either a private school away or at home to allow for a good education that would teach them how to thrive as their father had, how to be a good little boy. You'll be a good man. Yes. Eight-year-old. <laughs> The girls would be given a more general education at home while also learning more proper etiquette and some sort of like artistic skill like painting, playing an instrument or singing. And these skills would not be used for career purposes, but only for the entertainment of their friends and family and for attracting a mate. Oh my God. I'm just, I'm, I am literally summarizing a lot of what the upper class is. It's very much Bridgerton to me. Yeah. Even though that was before this. Mm. The upper class also had the luxury of affording servants to do literally everything in their home. This gave the uppers even more time to do whatever they wanted with. Um, so, like, that must just be nice. Were they bored a lot? What did they want to do? They were just bored. Well, they could just do things. Like, now there was, like, more activities to do. So, they just, like, did. They just lived a leisure lifestyle because they had enough money to not work that much. Oh, it must and be they nice. Could do, yeah. But that's kind of what we see now. So at this time, we're seeing the start of that kind of leisurely lifestyle. Okay. Whereas 
it's hard now, but we did see a rise in it. Like this leisure lifestyle was able to kind of seep into lower classes as well, Mm -hmm. just because the way we were able to make money and we had more time on our hands to do stuff. So that's where like middle class and even lower classes are then at some point going to start to be able to like play games and go to shows and be on sports teams and get an education and do other stuff because they have time to do it a little bit. Anyway, so the middle class was also doing well. Most of them owned their homes and they were feeling the benefits of a rising economy. At this time, though, the middle class families all worked, the mom and dad and sometimes the kids. Though they were comfortable in order to stay that way, they needed everyone to pitch in. As the middle class men and women were watching the upper class just thrive, they wanted to feel and do the same things. The men wanted to provide for their families in the same way, so they decided to work more so their wives didn't have to. And some could afford to do this, though it was tight. They also wanted to send their children to good schools like the upper class children. And although they may not be able to afford the elite schools, there were public funded schools available for home owning families. So this is why the poor kids didn't get to go. Yeah. It's like Mm -hmm. kind of a gross distinction. Yeah. But they still, I think it's because like either taxes or something, they still kind of had to pay for it, but they were public funded. So they weren't as, as expensive. Not all the middle class was the same though. There was a portion of the middle class that were struggling a bit more. There could have been many reasons for this. One in particular would be some of the families that lived in the cities. Though there was work in the cities, the rise in population and desperate search for a job allowed many places to offer lower wages. And business owners in certain areas may have had may have become victims of a lower economy too, with the people actually living there causing their businesses to struggle more. These lower middle class families did not have the luxury of allowing the women and child to just leisure around. So everyone needed to work. But unfortunately, the labor laws were changing in the country as well as Holly was. She brought up like Dickens and a protest about it. So this was all starting. But for some, it was kind of an unfortunate change that this was happening because it was making it harder for women to find jobs because not only were they trying to basically stop children from working, Mm -hmm. they were also like, well, women don't need to work either. So these just aren't great conditions for any, for a a woman or a child to work in. So now women were like, but we need to work. Yep. (laughs) And I'd rather work than my child. Yeah, for sure. And the work that they did find weren't always fair paying because more, there was now more women out of work seeking work so they could still just pay them less because everybody was so desperate and was like, I'll just take what I can get. Yeah, like no. It was also common for older children to find employment within the, like, with upper class families or at other businesses and things like that. They might become servants uh, for these families and that would be really nice for uh, for them. They sometimes had a place to live. Uh, they make fairly good money. And a lot of times the families were hoping like, oh, this might either up our status or their status, or we might be able to get a better education for our kids. Yeah, we saw that in the Ripper stuff too. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were like ladies' maids, or not ladies' maids, but they were like, you know, in-home mm-hmm. help for right. a while first before they kind of fell. And like Martha Cratchit, that's what she does. That's mm-hmm. why she's not in the home. And she surprises them by coming home for Christmas. Right. She's probably living in a wealthier family's home and working as a maid. Right. Yeah, exactly. And at this time, like we said, everybody was proud of that kind of job. Yeah. But it was also just this false reality of like, oh, we're going to 
we're going to do better. This will get us out of our hole and then we'll be, we'll be somebody. And it's really not like everybody, the upper class just wants to keep you where you're at. Yep. Oh yeah. It was hard (laughs) to get out of where you were. Mm -hmm. Like I said, in the workhouses, but like you, it was just a cycle. Mm -hmm. So though they seem a bit different, both, both of the middle classes held similar values, which was that family was very important and they spent a lot of time together when they could. They would open their homes to relatives who were visiting or fell on hard times. Um, And whereas this is different with some of the lower classes because they actually had a home and they could and they had family and they had somewhat of the means to just help enough. Yeah. But they really just kept it with their family unit versus like other people. The working class consisted of unskilled laborers who worked in brutal and unsanitary conditions. They did not have access to clean water and food, education for their children, or proper clothing. Often they lived on the streets and were far from, far from work, uh, so they would have to walk to where they needed to get to. The low wages and the labor laws making it hard for a wife or child to work only added to their struggle. Unfortunately, many workers resorted to the use of drugs like opium and alcohol to cope with their hardships. Most of the working class were not lucky enough to have their own home or rental either. In order to help pay bills, they would rent out a room or space to others who needed somewhere to live, which meant that while the middle class and upper class had homes they could find comfort and security in, the working class could never find relief from all of the stress. Oh, it's just like the constant cycle. You're just Mm -hmm. in it. can't get out. So that was just kind of the vibe. It was really hard. Pretty bleak. And it's hard because it's like a lot of times the middle class is who's a little bit closer to the lower class. And they're mm-hmm. going to be the ones that almost want to help more. Yeah. But they really don't have the means to help. Nope. Like they are just like making it yep. comfortable enough to live in, which is where everybody should be. Just comfortable. Yeah. Which <laughs> is where, well, which is the lower end of that is where we could really place the Cratchit family. Because if we're too, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't include this in our writing this week, but there is like um a modern day workup of Bob Cratchit's salary and what mm-hmm. it would be now. And it would be approximately minimum wage. You right. would be making about what minimum wage is more in some cases. Mm-hmm. Like he's he made out close to $14 an hour, I believe. Okay. And so he was, they were, uh, I mean, scraping by, you know, like they mentioned that Peter is going to go out to work. Martha has a job outside of the house. They take in Scrooge's laundry and wash it for money. So they they have like, I guess, kind of side hustles going on. So they, they do get by, but it's yeah. just barely. And it's not enough to afford the health care that their youngest needs. Right. Which is really what we're kind of aware of during it. But mm-hmm. that's that's about where we're going to place the crashes. Okay. Wild. Yeah, but they're supposed to be like the relatable family. I mean, if you made them like mm-hmm. so poverty stricken that they were begging in the streets, it wouldn't have been as relatable to most people reading that at the time. Yeah. So it makes sense to me to kind of place them where they were. Right. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, just that just that little struggle isn't yeah. it? Like they have they have their home, they have right. their house, right. they're okay with that. Yeah. But everybody has to work and their child and is their dying. child is dying and they don't have enough money for that. But they can put food on the table, but their child just might be dead next year. Yep. Yeah, which is brutal. Yeah. But we are to relate to the Cratchits. I think they are our every man. And, that's, yeah, and so sure. that makes sense what you're saying. Like, this is how, kind of how the majority of people live. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. That, um, that is very helpful. So now we have a sense of where we are. And I'm going to assume that everybody knows the story. <laughs> don't make a wild swing. But if you don't, start with the Muppets and work your way up to Alistair Sin. 
And if you want to finish listening to this episode before you get to do those things, uh, you'll probably be able to put it all together from what we have to say as well. So I'm going to skip the recap. Great. So the biggest question I had when approaching this episode was, who was the real Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Was he based on someone? And I very much suspected that I would get the same answer as I got when asking, who is the real Jason Voorhees? <laughs> Which is that nobody. He is a work of complete and total fiction set to represent a group of people or a certain ideal. But no, that is not what I got with Scrooge. Oh, right. Okay. And if you think Scrooge was eccentric, then hold on to your hats because Charles Dickens toned him down a lot. Oh, boy. Yeah. First off, I do not subscribe to the um, Ebenezer Scroogey myth. This is a fun one. Ebenezer Lennox Scroogey, or Scroogey, his dates are 1792 to 1836, was supposedly a merchant from Edinburgh who won a catering contract for King George IV's visit to Scotland. He was buried in Canongate Kirkyard with a gravestone that is now lost. But the theory is that Charles Dickens visited this cemetery and noticed the gravestone that described Scroggy as being a, quote, mealman, meal as in grain, like he, and epitaphs at that point in time are like super long. If you look at like the tombstones in Salem, they like tell your whole life story as opposed to just dates. Um, but Charles Dickens re misread this phrase to say mean man. And so he thought he was looking at a gravestone that was like Ebenezer Scrudgy, mean man. <laughs> and he was like, what if that was what you were? What if after you were dead, that's what people said about you? That's hilarious. Yeah. And that's a really, it's a very funny theory, but it really has no probable basis. Um, most people think it was just a Dickensian hoax because there's no corroborating evidence. Okay. It's a good story. Yeah. Right. That's but hilarious. likely not true. The real Ebenezer Scrooge, or at least the person he was based on, was a man named John Elways. John was such a well-known miser that A Christmas Carol isn't even the only work of fiction to borrow him. Charles Dickens made reference to John Elways himself in his last completed novel, Our Mutual Friend. And John Elways was also believed to be the inspiration behind the William Harrison Ainsworth character of John Scarf, who appears in his novel, The Miser's Daughter. This guy's like a pretty famous literary character. There's biographies. There's all kinds of stuff about him. But way back then. So why were so many stubborn, stooped, miserably stingy old men based on this guy? Well, probably because he was the best at all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John Elways had more money than any of us could probably dream of right now. Something like $35 million at the time of his death in current money. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is a lot. I mean, even in, in the time of billionaires, can you imagine having $35 million? That's like a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I bet you anything um, that he could have like actually taken a swim in a tower of coins like Scrooge McDuck. Not that far-fetched. Not really. You're right. He had more than anyone I know of, and yet he died of self-imposed starvation because mm. he didn't want to pay for food. I'm confused. I know. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. John Elways was born on April 7th, 1714, and his family was respectable. His father was a respected Southwark brewer, and his grandfather was an AP, like a political position or something. His mother came from money, so she was like a, an upper-class lady, not even middle-upper-class, like upper-class. Mm -hmm. She was the granddaughter of Sir Jarvis Elways, who was a politician in the House of Commons and also a notable miser. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, her grandmother was a woman named Lady Isabella Hervey. So if the lady part is telling you something, again, very upper class. 
she was also like a real penny pincher. So these people were very wealthy, but they also were like weird about their money. John always received a good education in the classics. He went to Westminster School, which is not just a dog show. <laughs> and after leaving, he traveled to Geneva, where he became like a really good horseman. He was a very good equestrian. And he found his love of hunting. Uh, and he went on to serve three terms in Parliament in the House of Commons as well. And that is where all of the normalcy ends. It's just batshit crazy from here on out. Good. Okay. Yeah. I'm ready. It seems as though John Elways was in a position to earn himself a comfortable living with his own merits alone. Right? He was in Parliament. He had come from a good family. Like, this is a pretty good, comfortable life. You should be happy. Yeah. No, 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 no. That is not how one comes to amass an ungodly fortune, right? I guess not. No, John did that the old-fashioned way. He inherited it. Good. Yes. Yep. It's the safest way. Of course. Elways inherited his first fortune. There's more than one. Yeah. Okay. From his father, who died in 1718 when Elways was just four years old. Although his mother was left $100,000 in the will, which is like $8 million in 2010 money, mm. she reputedly starved herself to death. So this runs in his family because she was too cheap to spend it. Oh, man. Yep. But after her death, John inherited all of it. But he didn't stop there. The greatest influence of John's life was his aforementioned miserly uncle, Sir Hervey Elways, second baronet of Stoke College and MP for Sudbury. Ooh. Yeah, Sir Hervey prided himself on only spending little more than 110 pounds on himself per year. Okay, so what does that equate? You know, it sounds like it's not much, but it's um, it it's, would be like the average income for a lower middle class family. So he was just not doing a whole lot. But that's like a starting point for okay. this whole shame spiral of weird poverty. The two of them would spend the evenings railing against other people's extravagances while they sat and shared a single glass of wine. Okay, it would be like 16,000. Oh, so it's even less. Okay. So that, yeah, that's like poverty level amount, but like mm -hmm. just being able to spend that. So really yeah. that's like your, that's probably just covering costs. That's all he spent on himself. So yeah. yeah. Um, and he brags about this, about spending like next to no money. And they would sit there and be like, we have all this money, but we don't spend it because other people are dumb and they spend their money. And they'd share one little glass of wine and grimace over a fire outside and trash can or something. I don't know. Oh, weird. I know. In 1751, in order to inherit his uncle's estate, that's um, John Elways changed his name. So he was born John Meggett, but he took his mother's family's last name, which was Elways, in order to um, curry favor with his uncle, hmm. who died on the 18th of September in 1763. And from starvation. Probably. I don't know. It doesn't say. <laughs> But he did leave his entire fortune to his nephew, John. So it worked. Okay, it did work. Yeah. Smart kid. It's because he's probably getting food right now. So he can think. He has like clarity of thought <laughs> yeah. for one minute because he ate a sandwich. Yeah, that yeah. sounds probably right. The net worth of the estate was worth more than 250,000 pounds then, which is approximately 18 million pounds in 2010 money. Wow. Yeah. Rich. And so with more money than anyone at the time had any right to having, because nobody was that rich back then. That was like like the queen. That was wild. John Elways elected not to behave like a man of good breeding and considerable worth, like was expected of him, but more like a man who had lost his mind to extreme poverty and brain fever. Here are some examples of his insane behavior. Hmm. Ready? I'm ready. 
Though he worked in Parliament, John refused to buy more than one suit. He had just one suit. All you need is one good suit. Wear it every day to work, every single day. He wore the same one every day, and his colleagues would quip that he could never be called a turncoat because he only had one. (laughs) (laughs) I like you can't switch because there's nothing to switch to. Right. John also refused to travel by carriage, as that would have been an unnecessary waste of money. So everywhere he went, he either walked or when he worked in Parliament and was traveling frequently, he would travel via an elderly pony. What? What? Like an old scraggly ass pony. That's what he rode. Yep. That was more cost effective. Yeah, for him. He probably found it somewhere. Yeah. He's like, well, this is a free pony. (laughs) Yeah, somebody didn't want this pony. Now it's my means of transportation. (laughs) He didn't often travel anywhere that was more than a day's journey, though. And remember back then, a lot of places were more than a day's journey. Uh, So he didn't really do it too often. But when he did, he would not take well-beaten roads, but rather cut through countrysides walking or riding his sad old pony in any and all weather. And he did this because private roads would cost a fee, like tolls. Mm. So I think you have to pay a toll to gain access to this road that is maintained. And because if the pony only walked on soft ground, he could save money on horseshoes. Right. That makes sense. No clippity clopping. Oh my gosh. That's a waste. I feel this kind of sounds like me. I get what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> like when I can save money, I'm like, yes. <laughs> also to avoid tavern tavern fairs. So mind you, taverns were places where if you were on the road, you, you stayed there and got a meal. They mm-hmm. were also an inn. So to avoid that, he would bring one single boiled egg with him in his pocket. Yeah. Always travel with a snack. <laughs> one egg. Yeah. And when he had to sleep, he would just lay under a hedge. Okay. <laughs> he could sleep. They I keep mean, I walking. Get it. It's a lot of money to like stay someplace and then you get food. Yeah, but it he had $30 million. Dollars. Because he doesn't spend it. He also uh, never cleaned his shoes, of which he only kept one pair. Because soap and water might weaken the leather, which would make them wear out faster. So better to stay very dirty. Yeah. Remember, he's walking through rough terrain all the time. Bet you they're steaming piles of shit right there. Sure they are. In cups. <laughs> and they're all from that pony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Is this like a, because ponies can't be old, right? Yes, so they is can. it like a yes, little can. Sebastian scenario? Pony, no, ponies aren't baby horses. They're oh, like I a variety were, of animals. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. They're just smaller. I thought they were just a, a young horse. No. Okay. So is little Sebastian a pony? No, he's a dwarf horse. Oh, okay. So maybe that's what he had. Even Wouldn't better. That be even better. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that's where the song came from. It's just little Sebastian <laughs> laying under a dirty hedge with him. <laughs> okay, so when he wasn't wearing his one suit, John Elway's dressed in clothing he either found in the trash or had inherited and had for a great many years. Mm. One time, he very famously found a wig in a hedge and wore it for two weeks. Well, he's a fun guy. <laughs> just an eccentric. Trash what wig. a good time. Now, because of his shabby appearance, most people also would mistake him for a beggar, and that's understandable. Yeah. So. Hilarious. There's one story where he, Wait, like... Wait, so he probably got more money. <laughs> probably. There's one pretty famous story where he, like, got um, hurt during one of his horrible travels, and nobody could find him because they didn't know it was him. They were like, well, there's just this old poor guy over there, like, limping around. And it was him. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know who I am? Like, no, 
sir. We don't. No, look at you. You're, you're gross. Like, oh, wait, that's little Sebastian. Oh, oh, you're the. You're, you're not John. a guy with typhus. You're yeah. Okay, that's like how they recognized him. Oh my god. He also went to bed at dusk every night because candles were an indulgence he didn't want to pay for. He only used natural light in his home. So when it got dark, time to go to sleep. Yeah, that's like pretty normal, though. It's yeah. like the circadian yes. rhythm, right? Circadian? Circadian, yeah. Yeah. It was dark at three o'clock there, but whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Um, he also slept in the stables instead of his big giant house because he thought it was an extravagance to build a fire in the house. No. He could just sleep near the horses, which he had and didn't use. For heat. Weird. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's where the pony was? Probably. Maybe he was really close to that pony. Maybe he was fucking that pony. <laughs> Might have been. You don't know. He's like, I'm going to go sleep with my wife. I mean, my pony. My pony. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, little Sebastian. <laughs> oh, God. And though his estate was large. <laughs> He's just wearing his wig. <laughs> his trash wig. <laughs> he got it because he wanted to impress the pony. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, no. So though his estate that he inherited, remember, he inherited this huge property, too. Yeah. It was big. And at one point in time, it was really lovely. John did nothing himself to keep it up, which is not surprising, as materials would cost money, clearly. Mm-hmm. And um, he wouldn't be paying anybody else to do labor, also a total waste. So the roof leaked in buckets when it rained. And there are stories of him like, you know, because when people were traveling through, if they knew him or his family, they'd expect to stay at this rather large estate. And they'd get there and they'd get to like their bedroom and they'd be like, it is raining on my head. And he was like, that's the nice wig- wing of the house. Oh Enjoy God. the rain. And they were like, I'm sorry, what? Oh my God. This reminds me of like when the Olympians went to Russia. Oh my the God. Olympics, and they were like, we're so excited. We finally made it to the Olympics. And they're like, where are we staying? Oh God. <laughs> All the Olympic villages are terrifying. But that's yeah. another story. <laughs> John also never married as keeping a wife was too costly, but he did have two sons with his housekeeper who he was paying anyway. Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't have to like pay for a wife to be kept because I'm already paying a housekeeper and I could just have her have my babies and like two birds with one stone. We're done. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. He's already married to the pony. Basically, you can't have kids with the pony. No, you cannot. So... Right. Housekeeper. His, his sons also received no formal education because doing this would be, quote, putting money into the pockets of others. Well, that doesn't make sense. No, it does not. Also, no one would go to his house for dinner. What? I, <laughs> I think his dinner parties would be insane. Um, as John would only buy carcasses on the verge of rotting from the butcher shop. Hmm. They were sold at a heavy discount, obviously, because it's just like bones with a little meat on them that people, I guess, normally would use to make soup or something. Mm -hmm. Any food that came into his home actually would be consumed no matter how rotten it got. So if he did get something bigger, like a whole sheep or something, because he was also a hunter, remember, it would stay in that house until every bit of it was eaten, no matter how long it took. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Nothing could go to waste. And in an era without real refrigeration, we can only imagine what that smelled like. Yeah. But even purchasing food near rot was still a little too indulgent for John sometimes. Like, he would splurge on a carcass, but most of the time, got a scavenge. So he would either hunt for his own food, remember he liked to hunt, or uh, and fish, or eat scraps out of the trash. Okay. Yeah. It was once said that he pulled a dead chicken out of the jaws of a rat that he found on a riverbank so he could eat the dead chicken himself. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you got to fight to survive. <laughs> yeah, well, you're real rich. Yeah. And perhaps my favorite story about John Elway's, not the, the hedge wig, which is a really good one, 
involves his mistrust of doctors. Now, there are three versions of this story, but I'm just going to tell you my favorite. John thought doctors were quacks trying to separate him from his money. Some people still think that. But that didn't mean that he was always in perfect health. I mean, clearly, he's eating like rotten food and wandering around under hedges, <laughs> sleeping out in the rain, eating one boiled egg. As previously mentioned, John was an enthusiastic hunter. But once, while out on the hunt, one of his colleagues accidentally shot him twice in the leg. Like, he was, like, aiming his gun wrong, and he shot him twice. Which, like, how'd you do that? So a doctor was summoned, and John made a wager. He said to the doctor, you can take one bullet out. I'm going to take out the other. And if your wound heals the fastest, I'll pay you. But if my wound heals the fastest, I don't owe you anything for your services. That's not how that works. It isn't. (laughs) But he won that bet. Okay. The bullet he dug out of his leg himself healed faster than the doctor excised wound. Like, okay, well, he proved his point. I guess he did. (laughs) As I stated earlier, John, like his mother, eventually would go on to die of starvation, Mm -hmm. leaving over 30 million pounds in his crumbling estate to his two uneducated sons and his nephew. John Elway's and his eccentric frugality were hardly kept a secret. Uh, I told you that. According to a recent issue of the Daily Mail, quote, Elway's life and mad habits were also chronicled in a biography, which I want to read, written by journalist and dramatist Edward Topham. This book, a bestseller published around the time of Dickens's birth in 1812, kept alive the stories which made Elway's a legend in his own lifetime in Suffolk and Westminster. Professor Leon Litvak of Queen's University, Belfast, is a principal editor of the Charles Dickens Letters Project, which collates the author's abundant correspondence, and he says the similarities between Scrooge and Elway's are clear. Elway's refusal to take account of the weather, lest it incurred any cost, finds an echo of Scrooge's imperviousness to the heat and cold, for example, like I read in the very beginning, like, didn't matter, Scrooge was just cold all the time, Mm. even if it was hot. Many Dickens experts believe illustrator John Leach, who made like the woodcuts in the original yeah. Christmas Carol, based his sketches of Scrooge on the first edition in the first edition of A Christmas Carol on contemporary portraits and etchings of John Elway's. And you can see the like relation. Like they okay. look the same. Ooh. I will put pictures up because he has like the stooped shoulders, the skinny neck, the thin nose. Yeah. He like looks like Scrooge. He has the exaggerated features we associate with him, the long nose, the gaunt face, the pointed chin, and the famous grimace, says Professor Litvak. But the one glaring difference between John Elway's and the character that he inspired is that he needed no lessons in kindness or compassion, according to the Daily Mail. For all his eccentricity, Elway's was known as a decent man. A weird man, but a decent man. Hmm. He was a moral MP and a loyal and forgiving friend. Edward Topham wrote of him, Quote, his public character lives after him, pure and without stain. In his private life, he was chiefly an enemy to himself. To others, he lent much. To himself, he denied everything, end quote. And this is true. John was known for lending money generously and exorbitantly, to a fault even. And even when the lendees couldn't hope to repay him, which is like Scrooge only with no expectations. Mm-hmm. That part of Scrooge is obviously a fabrication, but the rest, the refusal to burn coal, eating paltry food, never entertaining, seeing celebration as wasteful, walking everywhere he went, owning a large but mostly empty empty home, and never marrying, counting pennies even though he surely did not need to, was pure John Elway's. Wow. So, yeah. 
he was like weirder than Scrooge. So funny. Not worse. Worse is a bad way to put it because Scrooge has like moral deficits, which we're going to get into in one second. But John always didn't spend money ever. so. So weird. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So as for what Scrooge actually did for a living, the facts are actually pretty blurry. We know he was a merchant and a money lender, but we do not know what he sold to make the money he lent. Like, what was he merchanting? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We know his lifestyle afforded him the ability to make substantial loans upon which he was known for foreclosing and forcing families into ruination. We know he employs Bob Cratchit, but never see another employee in the counting house. Right. Just Bob. The counting house itself is always portrayed as small and cramped, but the literal definition of such an establishment, a counting house, is a bank place where you count money. So with that information, we can deduce that Scrooge is essentially a private predatory lender, an occupation in today's world that would be frowned upon at best and illegal at most probable. Right. Basically, Scrooge uses his own money to set people up for failure and then seizes all of their assets and leaves them homeless in the street. Wild. Fucking brutal. Yeah, but that that sounds right. (laughs) <laughs> it does. I just always kind of had this slight, like, I don't know, moral thread holding on to Scrooge. Like, well, he's a lender, but like he's lending money to people in this impoverished country that can't pay him back. And he's just more harsh and frugal than others. No, he was like trying to seize their assets. Right. Which is worse than just collecting on debts. It's, you know, casting your net to catch these people in a, in yeah. a, in a situation that they can't possi- possibly hope to get out of. But I guess that that's, the point of this story yeah. that Dickens was trying to write because none of those people in real life right. were going to get out of that situation. No, that was weren't. his point. He was like, you are doing nothing to help them out of their situation. Yeah. And it's not always, the 90% of the time, it's not even their fault. Yeah, absolutely. I say he could use a little redeeming, wouldn't you? For sure. Yeah. But what about the rest of our cast of characters? Well, a great many of them are actually based on members of the Dickens family. Hmm. This is why the story could feel so personal. Because to Charles Dickens, it was. So let's start with the Cratchits. Now, the Cratchits live at 18 Bayham Street in Camden Town. So how do we know that this is the exact address? Well, Charles Dickens describes the walk that Bob Cratchit takes every day to work. And it is the exact same route that Charles himself took as a boy into the city. Yeah, because the Cratchits are based on John and Elizabeth Dickens and their family. And that's Charles Dickens's parents. So technically he was a Cratchit. Cute. Yeah, right? And there were eight Dickenses that lived in a four-room house, which is exactly the situation the Cratchits have. And they lived solely on John Dickinson's clerk's salary because he was also a clerk, just like Bob Cratchit. Mm -hmm. Except for he was a clerk for the Navy and so was frequently relocated. Mm. and ultimately did not find a charitable benefactor in his miserly employer. No, instead, he allowed his family to live beyond their means. I think for a while he didn't tell his family that they couldn't afford certain things because when they lived in one location, it seems that they had more money than another. Mm. And, you know, some places are easier to live in than others. That makes sense. So at one time, when Charles was young, he was going to a private school and they were doing okay. Then they moved and they couldn't afford any of that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so somehow he managed to like kind of lose his shirt in the process. And so eventually John Dickens was locked away in the Marshalsea Debtors Prison in Southwark, London in 1824. 
His wife and his youngest children were put in there as well, as was the practice. Mm. So his dependents, kids that couldn't fend for themselves and his wife, were put in prison too. That sucks. Yeah. Now, while all debtors' prisons were awful, Marshall C. was particularly and famously awful. Quote, run privately for, for profit, as were all English prisons in the 19th century. Remember, mm. they're private institutions that people are running to make money off of. Right. So they don't want you to get out of them. The Marshall C. looked like an Oxbridge college and functioned as an extortion racket. Debtors in the 18th century who could afford prison fees had access to a bar, a shop, a restaurant, and retained the crucial privilege of being allowed out during the day. So these are people who are paying their prison fees, but not their debts. So they're keeping the prison engine going. Mm. Uh, ostensibly, the prison has businesses in it. Like I said, a bar, a restaurant, a shop, and they're patronizing these places, putting their money back into the prison, but they're not, that's not like... That's so annoying. Exactly. They're just like, here's my money for, you know, mm -hmm. paying off my debt. And they're like, or you can get a drink at the bar. But they also had the days out of the prison so they could still be making money oh. to pay off their creditors okay, or to just put it right back into the prison, right. however exactly. it may be going. Everyone else, though, if you weren't like a rich person in debtor's prison, you were just poor, you were crammed into one of nine small rooms with dozens of other people, possibly for years, for the most modest of mm -hmm. debts, which increased as unpaid prison fees accumulated. So you're just accumulating more debts if you can't pay the prison free. Right. The poorest faced starvation, and if they crossed the jailers, torture with skull caps and thumbscrews. A parliamentary committee reported in 729 that 300 inmates had starved to death within a three-month period and that eight to 10 of them were dying every 24 hours in the warmer weather. Oh, my God. Yeah, these are. this is just the wiki roundup on this, too. These mm -hmm. are, like, really brutal places. If right. you want to read more about Marshall C., they're, they're awful. But then Charles Dickens, at 12 years old, was too old to be put in the debtor's prison with his family because, you know, he was 12, so he could go make his own money. So instead, he boarded with a woman named Elizabeth Roylance, who was a friend of the family, at 112 College Place in Camden Town. And because he was still free, the task of getting his family out of debtor's jail rested partially upon young Charles. And to do this, every day, he would go to his family home from the place where he was staying and gather up as many of their belongings as he possibly could and then walk them over to the pawn shop. And the pawnbroker and his associates, or sometimes the house staff, would comb over the family's treasured heirlooms and meeker possessions commenting on their quality and what they were worth, and then buy some of the poor, some of them off poor Charles for a fraction of their actual worth. Of course. Yeah. Yep. And this is precisely where we get the scene where after Scrooge's death, we're in his house and the staff is going through all of Scrooge's earthly possessions looking for things to sell. Mm -hmm. Most famously, the curtains off his bed and his dressing gown. And while we see this as like a hard and car, like a cold and horrible atrocity that happened to a man no one cared for, it's like a shocking scene in the mm -hmm. show. It was actually happening all over England at the time. Right. It was not uncommon. And the event left a very lasting impression on young Charles Dickens. It's something he it was like, it was nightmarish for him. He never forgot bringing things that were worth the world to him and watching people kind of pinch pennies to give him mm -hmm. a little bit for them. And the scene is, is, like I said, one of the most jarring in the dramatic representations of Christmas Carol, so movies and stuff. And to say it is effective is an understatement because I can't imagine how awful that would have been if we weren't talking about like a dead old man, but a living 12-year-old watching it. Right. It's horrifying. 
So in addition to the pawning things to pay for his board and to help his family, Charles Dickens was forced to leave school and work 10-hour days at Warren's blacking warehouse uh, on Hungerford Stairs near the present Charing Cross Railway railway Station, where he earned six shillings a week pasting labels on pots of boot black. This is like horrible, strenuous work and harsh conditions. Um, so as I said before, he knew exactly what it was like to be mm-hmm. like a child working really hard. Yeah. Because he definitely. did it. Firsthand, man. Yeah. And this is like the source of his in- interest in the socioeconomic reform that he was like going to mm-hmm. rally for later in life. So, okay. The Dickenses were the Cratchits. We got it. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that Charles had a little brother who almost died of a mysterious illness, but did not? Does it? Not exactly. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about Tiny Tim for anybody who doesn't know about that. And Tiny Tim is is described in the book as small for his age. So they call him Tiny Tim, not just because he's the youngest in the family, but because he's like... Like the runt of the litter. Yeah, he's like really small. Yeah. And they say that like he walks with one crutch, his back is kind of bent, he's not feeling well a lot of the time, he's like pale and sallow, and he has metal braces on his legs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Charles didn't base Tiny Tim off a brother, he based him off his nephew. Hmm. And his nephew's name was Henry Augustus Burnett Jr., who unfortunately did not live. Mm. Yeah. Charles did have an older sister called Fanny, with whom he was very close. I love that name. Isn't that cute? cute. And if you remember, Scrooge's beloved little sister's name is Fanny as well. Mm. She's the only one that, like, cares for him. And when Scrooge is at that horrible school where nobody picks him up for Christmas, one year she comes to get him. And Mm. she's, like, his one source of happiness. And Charles, yeah. And Charles Dickens named her for his beloved older sister. And though Fanny Dickens did not die in childbirth, she did die young. Fanny Dickens was an accomplished musician, actually, whose career was commented on rather unkindly by people of the time as um, being ended by becoming a mother. Mm. Like when she had kids, her music career was done. Right. She had two sons, the youngest being Henry, uh, and he was severely disabled for much of his very brief life. But he was Charles's favorite. They were very close. Henry had Potts disease, which is also known as spinal tuberculosis. And eventually, Fanny contracted tuberculosis herself as well, as more than half the population at the time had mm-hmm. tuberculosis, which was like everywhere. Fanny died at just 38 years old, and Henry died two months later at just nine. Hmm. Yeah, unlike Tiny Tim, though, Henry was cared for by the best of anybody's abilities. But being as this was pre-antibiotics, pre-lister, and pre-lots of other safety measures, he simply was never going to survive the severity of his infection. Tuberculosis in your spine, like, makes your spine bent and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, like, pretty terrible. So does that mean that Tiny Tim had Pots disease? That's what we're led to believe he had? I mean, we all want to know what's going on with that kid, right? This is, like, a huge debate. Well, it actually depends on how you want the story to end. In the end, Dickens uses the famous phrase, Tiny Tim who did not die, (laughs) and we all assume that he lives happily ever after. But if you believe that he lives just for like a little while, then sure, you can say he had Pots disease like young Robert did. But if he did, that was going to kill him. There was no coming back from that. But if you're not a miserable human and want to assume that he got better for good and lived a nice long life, then the answer is a little more complicated. But there is an answer. Vampire. No. That's a story that, you know, somebody else could write, though. Okay. He was just a little vampire. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, And I will refer to a fantastic article in the Washington Post called The Case of Tiny Tim by a brilliant journalist named Roxanne Nelson. And actually, because it is so short and it is so perfect, I'm just going to read it for you. Cool. So, The Case of Tiny Tim. Every year around Christmas, the life of Tim Cratchit, better known to millions of fans of A Christmas Carol as Tiny Tim, is in peril. The Ghost of Christmas Present states that the small boy's medical prognosis, um, he states it loud and clear, foreseeing, quote, a vacant seat and a crutch without an owner. Such a tragic line. Charles Dickens's story of the transformation of the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is a holiday allegory, brimming with events and characters with multiple symbolic meanings, infusing a theme of sin and redemption. The visits of four ghosts on Christmas Eve jolt Scrooge and his cold heart reawakens to discover the magic of Christmas. Scrooge opens his wallet and Tiny Tim is saved. Hooray! But from what exactly is Tiny Tim saved? The precise nature of his illness has intrigued physicians and medical historians for decades, and it remains the subject of a lively debate among scholars from England to Hawaii, which delights me. I didn't know everyone was talking about how Tiny Tim died. Yes, Holly, from England to Hawaii. They write, like, dissertations on it. Mm-hmm. Dickens is never specific about Tim's diagnosis. It's wild to me. Instead, reporting a collection of vague symptoms that may have been common enough for his Victorian peers to identify them. But for us, they baffled. They're, they're baffling. So what's funny to me is that thought that like back then they would have been like, oh, this, this, and this, he definitely has that. And it would have been confusing to them. It's confusing to us because nobody's walking around like that anymore. Yeah. We're not like, oh, we're just going to let our kids have that. That's fine. <laughs> so what we know is that Tim Cratchit is small for his age, that he suffers from a crippling disease requiring the use of a crutch and metal braces on his legs, that he is weak and sickly and expected to die in the near future. But it's also clear that whatever was wrong with him was treatable in 19th century England and for those for those who could afford good medical care. So it has to be something that was bad, but if you could afford a doctor, you'd be okay, right? Mm-hmm. That's not Pot's disease. Okay. So here are the author's issues on this. Quote, the idea that Tim Cratchit may have suffered from a real illness is not as far-fetched as it sounds. For starters, Dickens himself had a variety of health problems, experiencing symptoms that suggest He may have suffered from migraines, gout, bronchial asthma, renal tuberculosis, and ischemic heart disease. He wasn't doing well. That's rough. Dickens' ailments may have been the subject of articles published in medical journals, doctoral dissertations, and scholarly newsletters. Second, Dickens had a keen interest in health and illness, evidenced by the number of characters in his books who suffer from various ailments. So he writes a lot about a lot of people who are sick. Though the author had no medical training, doctors have frequently commended the accuracy of his description of illnesses, many of which have now been diagnosed and labeled by modern medical science, but which were unnamed and untreatable in his day. So this is very common of Charles Dickens. He was really good at describing sicknesses that people had, even if they had no name for them back then. Okay. Finally, Dickens often modeled his fictional characters on people who had passed in and out of his life. And it is wisely, widely believed that his crippled nephew, Henry Harry Burnett, I thought it was Henry, I'll check on that. Who died from tuberculosis at age nine was his inspiration for Tiny Tim. So if Harry Burnett was Dickens's role model for Tiny Tim, then tuberculosis would be the most likely diagnosis. It's a good rhyme. Colonel Charles Callahan, Chief Department of Pediatrics at Pediatric Pulmonology at Pulmonology at Tripler Army Medical Center in Honolulu. So he is a big deal. And he is like postulating on what Tiny Tim died of. He arrived to this conclusion after careful study of the possibilities. Callahan was a pediatric pulmonology fellow when he was asked to write a textbook chapter on tuberculosis in children. (laughs) You're writing a textbook and you're like, I wonder if this is 
Tiny Tim. I would have thought that too. I love that yeah. though. I think that's great. Like if you knew that story well, you'd definitely yeah. be like, wait a second. And that December, after watching a movie version of A Christmas Carol, he began to muse about Tiny Tim's illness. In my research, I was startled to find out how prevalent TB was in England at the time, he said. It is estimated that half of the population of England was infected with TV in the late 19th century. That is so many people mm -hmm. coughing. And it was the single most common disease and cause of death in the Western world. Tuberculosis is a primarily a disease of the respiratory system, and it is spread by coughing and sneezing. However, after infecting the lungs, it can manifest in other areas of the body, including the bones and joints. According to Callahan, Tiny Tim probably suffered from Pott's disease, also known as tuberculosis spondylitis or spinal tuberculosis. Dickens never mentioned that Tim had any sort of respiratory disease, but as Callahan explains, it is very common for children not to exhibit the symptoms that we would normally see in adults. So it's like, a lot like COVID. Mm -hmm. Pott's disease most commonly occurs in children under the age of 10, which fits Tiny Tim. The disease is crippling, causing deterioration of the vertebrae. Children will often be in pain, experience weight loss, fatigue, and fever, and if left untreated, they're going to die. Callahan explored the possibility of other diseases with similar symptoms, including bone infections, septic arthritis, hematogenous osteomyelitis, and leukemia, lots of other stuff. But these conditions would cause Tim to be even more sick than he was. So that's mm -hmm. the thing. Tiny Tim's still like walking around and hanging out. Right. And also it has to be something that they could fit. Like they, exactly. they can cure. Exactly. Which, is, yeah. which poses like the biggest conundrum to these doctors is like, well, he was sick, but not that sick. But in a year's time, he would have been dead. But if they fixed it in a year's time, he would be fine. What is that? Do you think Dickens is just like somewhere being like, hey, guys, it, it's fiction? But that's the thing. That's why they were like, normally we'd say yes. But he, every other one of his works is medically extremely accurate. Like he was mm -hmm. almost a hobbyist when it came to medicine. So yeah, he wouldn't have. like he wrote this in six weeks and was having a bit of fun. No, wait. Okay. Just wait. Okay. Would, would Scrooge's benevolence save Tiny Tim from TB? Yes, believes Callahan. While anti-tubercular drugs were not available, Scrooge's money could have sent Tiny Tim from his home in London to a sanitarium in the countryside where he would have gotten fresh air and better nutrition and rest along with a custom-fitted back brace, which could have halted the progression of his disease somewhat or even put him into remission for a little while. Mm -hmm. But Tim's diagnosis is also dependent on one believes he is cured at the end of the story, as I said, or just still alive. Mm -hmm. With tuberculosis, a cure would be unlikely. So Donald Lewis, an associate professor of Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, set out to find a disease that was curable in 1843. He concluded that Tiny Tim may have suffered from a kidney disease called renal tubular acidosis, mm -hmm. or RTA. Lewis's interest in Tiny Tim arose when he was teaching diagnostic techniques and, like Callahan, studied Tim's symptoms and tried to fit them into a specific disorder. So he was like a cool teacher. who's like a house moment where he was like, what's wrong with Tiny Tim? <laughs> yeah. He then scoured pediatric textbooks from 1830 to 1850 to find out what illnesses were curable at the time. Okay. Based on his symptoms, Lewis says that physicians would have treated Tim for tuberculosis, which was generically known as scrofula. Oh, I don't know that one. In fact, Lewis said doctors treated everyone for scrofula, no matter what they came in for. <laughs> well, this is why that that eccentric Scrooge guy <laughs> wasn't going to the doctors. He was like, I don't have tuberculosis. You're I'm just, just going to give me scrofula, Tommy. Yeah, I'm not going. I don't want no scrofula. I will dig my bullet out myself. Yeah. 
It was believed that scrofula produced excess, excessive acids in the body, said Lewis, and patients would be treated with alkalized substances such as bicarbonate. Prescribes tonics of the era generally contained combinations of belladonna, opium, sodium bicarbonate, sodium citrate, and potassium chloride. However, in renal tubular acidosis, the body does accumulate excess acid, which interferes with bone metabolism. So according to the kidney specialist with whom Lewis conferred, untreated RTA would produce symptoms similar to Tim's, short stature being an early sign of the disease. Eventually, the disorder can cause osteomalacia, softening of the bones, muscle weakness, and kidney failure. The osteomalacia would tend to affect one side more than the other, which would account for Tim using just one crutch. Okay. But most important, in 1843, RTA was curable. This disease process would explain the whole picture, said Lewis. A lot of people have suggested tuberculosis, but the whole essence of the story is redemption and that tiny Tim does not die. So that means that there's something that physicians were able to do to correct his illness, and that's in keeping with the theme of the story and the technology of the era. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Okay. We found out what's wrong with Tiny Tim. Wow. Yeah. And that would make sense because it would be, I would, I would think that the parents may have figured out what was wrong with him and knowing that like if we had the mm -hmm. money, yeah, they would have to know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. They would mm -hmm. have to know. Because that's like the great tragedy of the story is that they, they can't treat Tiny Tim. Right. Not that like the treatment doesn't exist. They just right. don't have access or to it. Or that they don't even have an answer for what's going on, like that they would even be thinking maybe he just has tuberculosis or what is it? Scrofula. Scrofula. Everybody has scrofula. And that's how he became Dracula. And then he was Dracula. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> I just thought, I know that was a lot, but I yeah. thought it was so interesting that all these doctors were like so serious about <laughs> researching this. Isn't that wild? So anyway, that is the Crotchets and Ebenezer Scrooge and Tiny Tim and Scrooge's sister. But lastly, we have the specters that come to change Scrooge for the better, ultimately changing everyone else in his wake as well. And first we have Marley. So there's no like real person that the character of Marley is based on. There are some curious things about him that are worth discussing. But he was named after an acquaintance of Charles Dickens, a doctor with the mm -hmm. last name of Marley, with whom Charles Dickens had dinner and said, I have a weird last name. And he was like, oh, yeah? And he said, in a year's time, it's going to be very famous. And the doctor was <laughs> like, all right, Charles Dickens. And then it was. Wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's who Marley was named after. Uh, but the one thing that people fixate on about Jacob Marley is why his ghost appears with the bandage around his head. Mm -hmm. Everybody's always like, does he have a toothache? Why? I know. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> and when he takes, his off, takes it off, his jaw drops down to his chest. Yeah. And then people are like, is it a really bad toothache? <laughs> what is happening? I would think he was just decomposing. Oh, yeah. no, I don't know. I guess when I was younger, I was like, that's just what old people look like. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, ah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there is a school of thought that Jacob Marley died of a tooth abscess that went septic, mm -hmm. which is actually a common way to die back then mm -hmm. because dental care was not great. They basically just pulled out any effective teeth without anesthesia. And they didn't have antibiotics yet either. So they couldn't fix the wound or the tooth. And dental care was also pretty much for just the most privileged of people. And to a man as tight with money as Marley is assumed to be, uh, after all, he is interchangeable with Scrooge, he may have considered the dentist to be a luxury he didn't want to afford. 
So if left to his own devices for long enough with an infected tooth, this could actually totally be the way Marley died. Fine. Some people also say that he did have the tooth removed and the surgery reduced, like resulted mm-hmm. in an infection that killed him. Also possible. Fine. I will okay. concede to that. Or he has leprosy. Or he has leprosy and it's, his jaw is going to drop right the fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> also possible. But none of them are the actual reason that he has the bandage on his head, even if he did die of a toothache. Okay. In the 1840s, mortuary science was not what it is now, and death is not by its very nature what we consider to be very pretty all the time. The thing around Marley's head was a version of what some people would call a winding sheet, and this is what they would, like, bind corpses up in. Simply put, it was there to keep his jaw shut because in death, the muscles had gone slack Mm -hmm. and it would just Mm -hmm. hang open. Real wide. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And and there was no musculature to keep it closed. So it's just like kind of hanging there like a ventriloquist dummy. And since Scrooge was Marley's sole executor and mourner, the last time he would have seen Marley would have been at his burial. So he would have had his jaw tied shut to preserve his dignity. Mm-hmm. And not to ter- any, terrify anybody who wanted to like come to his funeral. So people were like, we got to like, they can't look like this when we're having a funeral. <laughs> people are going to run away. That's bad scene. Um, so Marley appears to Scrooge as he did in his coffin. But this time he has to talk. So to do so, he undoes the bandage, um, yeah. which mm-hmm. because he has no muscle tone, makes his jaw just flop open. Um, oh, this just makes the story so much better. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and after a few minutes, he like kind of gets the hang of talking with it. But at yeah. first it's just like. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. So after Marley, that's Marley's deal. We meet the ghost of Christmas past, who is almost always portrayed as like a beautiful woman in a white dress. And I should know, I played her for years. Mm. But that's not how the ghost was written. Mm-mm. It's written in a way that I think is scary. Yeah. Like the scariest, scarier than the death one. Quote, it was a strange figure like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some sort of supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child proportion. So it's a tiny adult that's blurry. Mm -hmm. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age. And yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if to hold uncommon strength. Its legs and feet were most delicately formed, but like those upper members, bare. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using in its duller moments a great extinguisher for the cap which it now held under its arm. So it's like a candle snuffer that it holds. Mm -hmm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality, so it gets worse. Mm. For as its belt sparkled and glittered, now in one part and now in another, what was light one instant at another time was dark. And so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm and now with one leg, now with 20 legs, Mm. now with a pair of legs without a head, now with a head without a body of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again distinct and clear as ever. Mm. It is a gross ball of limbs. Yeah. 
I don't know how this turned into a pretty lady in a dress. They were like, well, that's really hard to put on television. Yeah, you can't show that on stage either. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. And they could do it on TV now. I yeah. can see it, but before. No. <laughs> and on stage especially. Yeah, the ghost of Christmas past. Can you however, imagine doing that? We ew, just have like limbs like, coming uh, out And at one point, it's just a ball of limbs. <laughs> ew. <laughs> and that's the first one. You'd be With like, a nice Fuck. sparkly belt. <laughs> <laughs> but it can accessorize. Yeah. You can you imagine? I'd be like, fuck this. After the first one, oh, I got to go. I can't. I can't. I'm not going back to sleep ever again. I'm done. Ooh. But the ghost of Christmas past is supposed to reflect the very nature of a memory. Mm-hmm. And memories are both old and new and blurry and crisp all at once. And because of this, it can never be just one person or being. It has to be lots of things all mm-hmm. at the same time. And though past is often portrayed as the most lighthearted of the spirits, it is actually the most cruel because the past is the one thing that Scrooge can never change. Yeah. Yeah. The other stuff, they're like, well, it sucks, but you can fix it. But you can't fix that. But remember when you did all these fucked up things and when your life was horrible when you were a child? Mm, That sucks. But unlike Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present is a fully formed apparition. He's described like this. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter, and he obeyed. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim. (laughs) Yes. Steaming bowls of punch, not piles of poo. (laughs) Sorry. But here's the fun thing. Every image of him I've ever seen, all this stuff has been around him, right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to form a giant throne that he's yeah. in. Mm-hmm. This is my meat throne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Symbolic of my wealth. Yep. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn and held it up high to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping around the door. Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in and know me better, man. So he's a giant on a giant meat throne. Yes. Yes. Then he identifies himself as I am the ghost of Christmas present. And Scrooge observes that he was clothed in a simple deep green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. So understated. Covered in meat juice, but understated. Um... (laughs) And it hung very loosely around him, and he's, like, naked underneath it. And he wore a holly wreath on his head with mm-hmm. shining icicles on it. Very pretty. And he said to Scrooge, you have never seen the like of me before. But is that really true? Mm-hmm. I don't think it is. The ghost of Christmas present bears a strong resemblance to the English non-Santa Santa, Father Christmas. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about Father Christmas, Leslie? I can, Holly. Most of us know Father Christmas today as Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. But the earliest accounts up through the Victorian era, Father Christmas was strictly an allegorical figure rather than a mythological being. He symbolized the Christmas season and was usually depicted as a merry old man presiding over festive parties. So this would have definitely been like somebody that Dickens would have been familiar with, like yeah. the idea of this kind of character. How do I get that job? I just go to parties. Yeah, I know. 
He wasn't receiving letters from children, making toys with elves, or handing out gifts to all the good little boys and girls. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, Father Christmas was basically just a hype man for the entirety of the Christmas season. (laughs) (laughs) So he just went to your party and was like, Christmas! Yeah, that's it. That's all. They were just like, bring the cheer. I got it. I am the cheer, bitches. I'm naked under this robe. What up? (laughs) Toga party. Basically, yeah. Yeah, he was just a frat boy. Mm Mm-hmm. Having a good time. Yeah. The origins of Father Christmas aren't directly known. It's very possible that he was inspired by the Norse god Odin. This is the one that makes the most sense to me. He flew through the midwinter sky, spreading cheers during the Yule celebrations, Mm -hmm. mainly celebrated by the Germanic peoples. Yule was a festival that followed the midwinter solstice, usually around December 21st, and celebrated the return of the sun as the day slowly started to get longer again. The festivities, which involved lots of drinking and consuming of slaughtered animals because it's the end of the year and they're going, they're probably going to die anyway. So you so have enough gonna... to make a throne of meat. Got it. Yeah, Perfect. got it. Mm-hmm. These festivities lasted up to 12 days. Holy so, shit. 12 days of Christmas. Oh, you got to kill all your partridges. Mm-hmm. Got it. Sorry, guys. Mm-hmm. Families would decorate their homes with evergreen plants like holly, mistletoe, and pine tree branches. I was there. It was good. You were there. Mm-hmm. We decorated with you. Mm-hmm. As Christianity was taking over the world, as it does, Yule merged into Christmas. For a time, the holiday was still about gathering with friends and family, giving thanks for the year, and celebrating the change of seasons, as well as the birth of Christ. So it's like they did all of the fun stuff, right. and then they were like, Jesus, too. But also Jesus. Yeah. Okay, fine. That's not that intrusive. Mm-hmm. But the Christians didn't believe in Odin, so they couldn't give thanks to him. Instead, they turned his character into Father Christmas. In Germanic Yule tales, Odin often took the disguise of a wise, bearded old man dressed in a cloak with a pointed hat. Mm -hmm. He would fly over the houses and even stop into the parties with the human. He would be like, yeah, let's just do this. Why not? Yeah. So this turned into a large merry man with a beard who enjoyed drinking, eating, and having a good time with everyone, but was not considered a god in any way or even a real person. Just a good time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a good time, y'all. Now, from here, I'm mostly going to talk about England's history with Father Christmas. So the first use of the name Father Christmas appeared in the 15th century carol, whose lyrics include the line, Hail, Father Christmas, hail to thee. Uh, there was also another uh, reference in a cal- uh, carol that um, talks about like a jolly old man who would sing praises of the birth of Jesus too. Mm. So in 1616, Ben Johnson's play, Christmas, His Mask, was performed for the English royal court. In the play, the character of Christmas appears in an old-fashioned clothes with a long, thin beard, calling himself Old Christmas. He chides the guards for refusing to let him into the party and argues that he is as good a Protestant as any in my parish. And that was a pointed comment at the time when Christmas celebrations were coming under attack from Puritans. Oh, shit. Okay. Johnson's character of Christmas is definitely old, and he is definitely a father. He brings with him several of his sons and daughters, each personifying a different tradition of the period with names like uh, Miss Rule, Carol, Mince Pie, Mumming, and Wassel. Hey, I'm Mince Pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most unfortunate of all old Christmases children. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Christmas himself came with no gifts, but one of his sons, New Year's gift, 
brought an orange and a sprig of rosemary with a collar of gingerbread and a bottle of wine on either arm. So, yes, New Year's. <laughs> All right, New Year's, baby, right. or whatever you are, bring the gingerbread and wine. Yes. <laughs> so leave mince pie at home. <laughs> mince pie is like, I brought me. <laughs> Shut up, mince pie. <laughs> wow. The Puritan attack on Christmas intensified during and after the English Civil War of 1642 to 1651, and royalists came together to defend Christmas. But in 1647, Parliament banned it, along with Easter and many of the other pagan-rooted holidays. They were like, we can just have no fun. Mm -hmm. The Puritans said no, and we're in line with that. Please sit in your room and think only about Jesus. Yes. Shut up, mince pie. (laughs) (laughs) They want to party. Sit in your room and think in the awe and power of God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And in 1658, a a pamphlet entitled The Examination and trial of old Father Christmas depicted him as a man with a white beard and old-fashioned fur-trimmed gown. He is put on trial for his life, but thankfully for us is acquitted by the jury. So it's like everybody was just like, we want Christmas back. Yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. Give me old Christmas. Yeah, so in 1660, Christmas was back. Oh, good. And for the next 200 years. Father Christmas would show up in stage plays and folk dramas. However, he was so very far removed from our beloved Santa Claus figure today. Father Christmas was presented as only a personification of feasting, games, and merriment. He was often depicted in a large robe, usually green, wearing a festive wreath, with his bare chest out, kind of like a sexy guy. Yeah. He was definitely not a role model for children in any way, though. Like... Not at all. He was just there for the party. Hey, guys. I bring the party. I know. I just feel like he'd be, he'd have all this food around him. He'd be going nuts. And he'd just be like, win in Rome. Sit on a throne of meat. Yes. (laughs) Then just flash everyone. Yes. (laughs) just be still here. (laughs) Just be sitting there, like, grazing his chest hair. Just like, bring me the meats. (laughs) (laughs) That's my Santa. So this version of Father Christmas takes us up to a Christmas carol. It's pretty clear Dickinson's ghost of Christmas present is inspired by Father Christmas. And then I did have the quote that Holly already read. So that's fine. But you guys heard that. So cool. So that's how Scrooge like came upon him and saw him on his throne of meat. Yes. (laughs) Turkeys and geese and oysters. Yum. (laughs) Actually, those were barrels of oysters. Yeah, they were in barrels. They were like not raw seafood on the throne. That's disgusting. The rest of the stuff, though, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And just like Father Christmas, whose energy is only around for the holiday season, the ghost of Christmas present can only be present on Earth for as long as Christmas is. Mm -hmm. So after the spirit begins to show Scrooge families he has touched throughout his life and the way that they celebrate the holiday season, The ghost begins to make a slow and steady change. His hair goes white, his face ages, and he begins to become more dark and sinister in his message. Then he ages and becomes a memory of the past, which I think is also what he then goes into in the uh, Ghost of Christmas Past. It's just one of his many legs. I think it just, I think all of those ghosts are all one and they just move through. Because just absorb into the ball of legs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because that was just the ghost of Christmas present that Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. If it was the true. next Christmas, it would have been a different ghost. Right. It would be a different ghost. Yeah. I think Mince Pie is still there, though. Yeah. Miss Rule. That's like the coolest one. Miss Rule is cool. Rule. 
I'm Miss Rule. I break all the rules. I know. <laughs> Me too. And there's mumming. Mumming and mince pie are just like together. Shut up, mince pie. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, like room. They room together. Yeah. They hate it. Uh-huh. You're bringing me down. <laughs> They're so dumb. <laughs> I want to spin off of them. I know. Oh, boy. Well, Father Christmas is a good time. It really is. I kind of like Father Christmas. They, uh, one of the articles I read called him like, he was kind of like burlesque Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, he's fun. So lastly, in the trilogy of ghosts, we have the ghost of Christmas yet to come, who is quite obviously the personification of death. I don't think anybody's arguing about that. But don't be sad about it because Victorians loved death. They love it. They're like, "Mm, death enters the chat. Yes. (laughs) They're so happy about it. Me too. Okay, so here's our, our, our description of him. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifting up his eyes beheld a solemn phantom draped and hooded coming like a mist along the ground toward him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached, and when it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate its darkness by which it was surrounded. So it's basically just the night. Just darkness. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit spirit neither spoke nor moved. So, spooky, right? Now, while he himself did not believe in ghosts, whatever Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens really liked them a lot. And this ghost was his chance to go all out. During the 1840s, the threat of typhus and cholera were very real for everybody, as was tuberculosis and a host of other fatal illnesses and injuries that wouldn't even be a second thought now. Death was always peeking over your shoulder back then, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come is a symbol of that, a memento mori, if you will. Memento mori means, remember, you have to die in Latin. It's a very famous like form of art, um, and put very simply... It usually is something that demonstrates the inevitability and fear associated with death and dying, but it's surrounded by remnants of life. And usually these are paintings of like, you guys are going to know exactly what I'm talking about if you don't already. It's like a painting of a skull or other bones or both surrounded by ephemeral elements of life, like fruit or flowers Mm. or relics from a, a person's daily existence. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come with its shroud, staff, and skeletal hand surrounded by images of life, as Scrooge would never know it, is Charles Dickens's contribution to this art form. So that's his memento mori. It just happens to be literary instead of oil paint. So that was kind of a cool concept, as he was a great artist. That's his contribution. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, it worked. It all worked. Scrooge awoke on Christmas morning a new man, and he made right all of his wrongs. Tiny Tim did not die. Okay. The Cratchits were given the help they needed. Scrooge reconnected with his nephew and became the kind of man the spirits of Christmas knew he could be. A Christmas carol found its way into the homes and hearts of millions of people the world over. And with it, the spirit of giving, like Scrooge, was reborn. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, 
as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town or borough, in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset, and knowing that such as these would be blind anyway. He thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins and have the melody in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us, and so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Toast. Toast. Yeah. Cheers. Yay. Yeah. Father Christmas, bringing it. Father, bringing Father the Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there is an actual burlesque act of Father Christmas out there. If not, there needs to be. Um. Okay. Guys. What I thought was really funny is that because he was like this sexy hype man, mm -hmm. when the Victorian families started to be like, Christmas is going to be more family oriented mm -hmm. now because it really wasn't about the children at all. No. And they were like, no, we're going to do more wholesome things mm -hmm. in here. They were like, well, we can't use this guy You got to go. So that's why they started to transition. They almost kind of like let him go. Mm -hmm. And um, but then later they took on this more traditional like Santa Saint Claus Nicholas. like the Saint mm -hmm. Nick came in to play and then I think we I don't know if we talked about this in the Santa Claus one but how like Tolkien was a huge like everything comes back to Lord of the Rings for me but Tolkien was like a huge reason that we have like Santa Claus and like we write letters and stuff like that because he did I don't know I'm gonna have to find this article find it I forget if we talked about that in the Santa Claus know, episode I don't remember I've done so much Christmas yeah mythology but he has a book. He has a book of letters to Santa that is published now. Because I think he used to write them maybe for his kids. Maybe. Like, as Santa. Like, oh, we got these letters. Like, thank you know. for the cookies. Here's cute. your gifts. Like, That's cute. Yeah. I like it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, toast to uh, Christmas. Yes, to Christmas. <laughs> to, to Dickens. And the spirit of giving and holiday cheer and yes. all of the things that we like. And not being a curmudgeon. No, don't be a curmudgeon. Not at all. Mm -hmm. And to you guys, for a wonderful year, 2022 for us, for We Would Be Dead is over. This is almost the, the book close on the year. Yes. So you'll get some ghost stories from us in a couple of days, and then uh, you won't hear from us until a, a, another page in the book is turned. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, the other thing that I learned about sure. this is that in the um, Christmas time in general for centuries yeah the whole uh, one of the largest points of it is to give back to your community mm -hmm. and to be charitable and so that was all the way through like the victorian era too so like this story is mm -hmm. also that's like well that was the point of charles dickens's thing yeah. is i felt that people lost that yeah exactly and that it needed to come back to that mm -hmm. time it was like well nobody does that anymore it's not mm -hmm. a thing nobody's getting everyone's so focused on their own shit life that you mm -hmm. can't really be charitable. Right. Plus, they're all stuck in these never-ending hamster wheels that they have mm -hmm. nowhere to give. Right. And really, the only change that can happen is from the top down to the bottom. Right. And that's kind of what this was. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah. And after that, it did. It did. I mean, Christmas did become, with the publication of A Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. more focused on charitable giving, more mm-hmm. focused on families. People were suddenly having big dinners together, whereas before it was just kind of like not a huge deal. Wasn't as big mm-hmm. of a holiday. So he kind of, he did start, as I said earlier, like a Christmas renaissance that just kept going. Right, right. Yeah, it involved the more of the family than yeah. just the adults. Yeah, it wasn't just grownups getting hammered with Father Christmas, which like, maybe we should have those parties make a comeback. I know. In addition to the wholesome stuff. It sounds like that's our 12 days of Christmas and then it ends with the kids' Christmas. <laughs> right, 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 right. But there should still be Father Christmas night and how can I attend? Yes. Get back to us. And if we ever forgot the true meaning of Christmas, we would be dead. Shut up, mince pie. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. This is my meat throne. All right, Charles Dickens. <laughs>